gentlemen, welcome to the Biff Tannen Museum, dedicated to Hill Valley's number one citizen and America's greatest living folk hero, the one and only Biff Tannen. Of course, we've all heard the legend, but who is the man? Inside, you will learn how Biff Tannen became one of the richest and most powerful men in America. Learn the amazing history of the Tannen family, starting with his great-grandfather, Buford Mad Dog Tannen, fastest gun in the West. See Biff's humble beginnings and how a trip to the racetrack on his 21st birthday made him a millionaire overnight. Share in the excitement of a fabulous winning streak that earned him the nickname, the luckiest man on earth. Learn how Biff parlayed that lucky winning streak into the vast empire called Biffco. Discover how, in 1979, Biff successfully lobbied to legalize gambling and turned Hill Valley's dilapidated courthouse into a beautiful casino hotel. I just want to say one thing. God bless America. Hi everybody, my name is Drew McQueenie and welcome to a very special bonus episode of 80s All Over. I am not joined as always by my co-host, Scott Weinberg, but I am joined by my former co-writer and uh, the co-host of my old podcast, the Motion Captured Podcast, and a uh, longtime friend, Rebecca Swan. Rebecca, how you doing? Thank you, Drew. I'm, I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. I'm, a, I'm excited because I, I truly believe... That if I am talking about film going in the 80s and my experiences, uh, at some point in that process, you have to be a guest because you were there for so much of it. I think that if you are talking about going to the movies in the 80s, at some point you have to mention me. So, yes. you know, it is rather fitting that I am here at least one time for this. So Well, uh, you and I met in uh, 1985 and we had both moved to Florida uh, just before that. And... Uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, we are very nearly to that stage of the podcast. We're about six months out, and in about six months, we're going to do that August 1985 episode, which is when I moved to Florida. And I did it so I could go to a high school that had a, sort of a media center and a built-in closed-circuit television station, and that's where I met you, was making media stuff for them. Um, and we actually did a movie review show uh, way back in the 80s. So as as long as we've known each other, we have talked about movies and uh, talked about the goods and the bads. And uh, we did 80s all over at the actual moment of the 80s, darn it. You know, what's weird is we never really argued too much about movies. There are, there are certainly things that we disagreed about or that we loved, you know, more or less. And I think there was there was often times where we would uh, if we were opposed on a film, it was more a source of delight to try and figure out what the other person's problem was. <laughs> I can think of one instance where we agree, we disagreed like completely on it. I know you're going to get a kick out of this and that's the movie, the jewel of the Nile. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I told you, I recently showed my daughter, I told her I was showing her the, um, the romancing the stone trilogy. Um, <laughs> and she was like, she was like, Oh, great. Cool. So I showed her um, romancing the stone and she mm -hmm. liked it. Then I showed her Jewel of the Nile, and she flipped for it. Like, she really loved it. So I was like, well, I couldn't have been that wrong when I said I loved it in the 80s. Nice. And then nice. I showed her The War of the Roses. Which is, of course, the third film in the trilogy, yes. <laughs> she, was, 
she's sitting there. She was ready for it too. And then, like about twenty minutes in, she kind of looked at me like, "What the hell?" <laughs> See, I would love if those were actually the official characters. If they, the third movie was not an adventure at all. It was just them working out their divorce. You know what's really weird that I noticed in watching the movies again? Movie stars today take much better care of their teeth. It's strange. Like, oh, it's very I mean, different. I, like I was watching it, going, "My God, Michael Douglas has had his teeth done, obviously, since this movie." And uh, Kathleen Turner, you know, beautiful woman. You know, I'm not taking anything. But she had very dingy teeth. In uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what was going on back then. I don't know. Anyway, probably a lot of coffee. You know. <laughs> anyway, well, it's. It, I think I think it's very true that movie stars today are required to be a very different physical specimen than a movie star even in the '80s. And the 80s was already, they talked about it as an age of like polish and sort of everything's hyper slick. You look at people in the 80s compared to movie stars now where everybody has to be ready at the drop of a hat to be a Marvel superhero or to do a shirtless scene where they're completely jacked. Everybody has to look like a underwear model now. And back then, anybody could could end up as a movie star with the right talent or the right kind of charm. I always loved how – well, not really loved, but just was amazed by, I should say, how movies, most movie stars in the 80s like had no muscles. It was – the way actors are today, you brought up Marvel. You know, you look at any of those guys, even like Robert Downey Jr. My God, when he does a shirtless scene, he looks really good. Yep. It's like um, – and, of course, um, you know, looking at Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, that's just – I mean, it's just like muscles on display. I would like to show Robert Downey Jr. now – to Robert Downey Jr. and back to school just to blow his mind. He would look at it and go, no. What is that? <laughs> he, like, totally fixed his teeth, too. I really miss his old 1980s teeth. He had Lauren Hutton teeth in the 80s. He had, like, the real gap going on. I, I miss freak Robert Downey Jr. When's that guy going to come back? See, I don't think that guy can come back. I think freak Robert Downey Jr. was driven by a lot of demons. And, uh... The one we have now is funny, witty Robert Downey Jr., who's going to go home and actually take a you know nap and be a normal human being. So that's probably good. He reminds me of like an old, old like nineteen forties movie star these days. He's like a Gary <sighs> Gary Cooper or something. You know, I don't know. Well, he has settled into it now, and in a way that I think he's very aware of what a movie star is. And I don't think that's who he was when he started. One of the things that I'm really enjoying as I go back through the 80s right now is the rise of that whole sort of school of young actors who felt like they were influenced by the method actors, the generation before them. So the guys like Matthew Modine and Nicolas Cage and Sean Penn, for God's sake, like that and Tom Cruise, of course, a huge. um, I feel like that rise of those Tom Cruise as a method actor. That's kind of interesting. I would love see, to I see think, the Tom Cruise method film. That would be, I think, I think he is, I, while I don't think he came out of the method school the way that Cage and Penn did, I think he was in his own way, just as hungry to work with great filmmakers. I think he's more the Newman end of the, the pool. It's appropriate that that was his mentor and sort of the, the guy that he chased so much. But watching that rise right now, because we're right in the middle of it in 84, is all those guys are making movies like Racing with the Moon and Birdie and, you know, Tom Cruise is starting to finally break through and become Tom Cruise movie star. Um, I find that era fascinating. And it was so much fun watching it happen at the time because I felt like I was as excited about the history of acting and, and sort of the challenges of acting as those young actors were. And we watched so much of that stuff together. And there were so many of those guys that... 
I was just delighted by. I just got to do uh, Pope of Greenwich Village again. Mickey Rourke and Eric Roberts in that film make me cry laughing because they're both just out to win as actors. They just want all of it. <laughs> you know, Eric Roberts has had a very interesting career. Um, yeah. and, and even even today, every time he pops up, he's at least, you know, somewhat fascinating. His legacy hasn't had longevity. People don't talk about Eric Roberts the way they did when you and I were 13, 14, 15, and he was doing Star 80 and Pope of Greenwich Village and those movies. But at that point, I mean, my God, Star 80 is still one of the craziest performances of that whole decade. Star 80 is one of my favorite movies ever. And I'm not really that big a fan of Bob Fosse. I mean, I, I can admit that. I'm, eh. You know, I saw Lenny again recently, and I don't know. I didn't really care for it that much when I saw it the first time. But, but Star 80, though, such a committed performance. I, I, I agree with you. I, and rewatching it recently after Hugh Hefner's death, um, what I find really fascinating about it is how scathingly angry Fosse is at Hefner and that world. He clearly does not like Hugh Hefner and doesn't care about this whole pornographic sexual revolution. I think Fosse thinks it's bullshit. And that's really interesting because you and I grew up in, in an age where Playboy was very much put at the center of the culture as, no, this is a good thing. And this is a force for good. And Hugh Hefner is a feminist icon. And like, there was a lot of that when we were young in terms of uh, his media presence. In the seventies, definitely uh, Playboy was like the, uh, it was the, you know, it was everything um, mm-hmm. uh, as a as a kid in the seventies. That's that was always the goal was getting your hands on a Playboy. But um, it seems like such an innocent time now. But anyway, let's move back to the eighties. Let's start with something that I, I know when I met you was very important to you, which is horror in the eighties. When we first started hanging out, you I think were really flush in that discovery of sort of makeup effects and horror films and, and thinking about what you could do. And I know it wasn't even the slasher movie that excited you so much as it was slasher makeup. And right away, like that was part of the fun of as film fans talking back and forth was just the giddy excitement of how things were made. That was a great age to be a horror fan precisely because of that makeup revolution, I think. Absolutely. And when I was a teenager, I wasn't one of those horror fans who got into watching the victims die. Even though I enjoy I, the the first four, uh, four Friday the Thirteenth movies are very close to my heart. I'm not like into it for you know killing. Well, back then it would be killing young young ladies, and today there's like at least there's a nice mix of uh, genders being murdered. <laughs> we need diversity in murder. We really need diversity in murder. We do. I mean, it's like when I, you know, when I write a horror movie these days, like, um, you know, the last movie that we, you attended the premiere of extremity, I was very careful. Like I, I didn't want it to seem like, okay, we're just going to beat on and murder women for an hour and a half. You know, it's, I, I, you know, so I wanted to make sure that there were male characters getting beat on and murdered. And, um, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's such a different time today than it was in the 80s. Rebecca Swan believes in a platform of everyone being allowed to be beaten and murdered. That's really what Rebecca Swan's about. In, in, a, in, in a dramatic setting, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually a pacifist. I think you know that, right? I, I, do. I, I do everything I can to avoid altercations, violence. Uh, I don't even like getting into arguments. 
but horror has always been a magnet. And what is it about the remove of the fantasy or the remove of seeing something on screen or working things out on screen? Because I feel the same way. I think horror is a huge genre and an important genre and a vital genre. The most important genre, definitely. Yeah. Horror is horror is the most important genre there is, period. I dare anyone to change my mind. I'm going to get the table set up with the, with the thing. <laughs> just change my mind. Um, because I believe it. I believe you. Because, you know, you've said this in the past. I'm sure some other people have, too. You can do anything in horror. You can discuss anything in horror. It's the, it's the most uh, flexible. You know, you can discuss things without really discussing them. You just keep it below the surface a little bit. It's a fantastic, exciting genre. And the great thing about it is, is it always seems to keep reinventing itself. Uh, I think that's fantastic. I mean, like, you know, like, say, dramas don't typically tend to reinvent themselves every decade. That's what I thought was so exciting in the 80s was it was a moment where horror was going through some pretty radical restructurings. And uh, some of it was they were remaking stuff and they were trying to find new ways in. And so you get like the thing or you get the blob. And some of it was they were doing their own thing and then they they turn into horror franchise machines, you know, and the whole nightmare on Elm street, Friday the 13th sort of industrial complex that then set in over the, the decade. But horror in general, that decade was, I think really exciting because it felt like everything was on the table and anything could happen. You were, you brought up makeup effects. That was around the time when some of the icons of special effects makeup really brought the art form to a new yeah. level. And the and the rate the R rating just like you could get away with so much more in a PG rating you could get away with so much more in an R rating back then they were R rated movies like the movies that we saw I hesitate to call any movie obscene some of those movies kind of borderline on obscene one of the things that I I got recently sort of shocked by um, I remember that there was a lot of critical pushback against horror in the early 80s, especially that, like you're talking about the explicit to the point of almost obscenity horror. As I go back and I'm reading a lot of the Fangorias, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm reading all the Fangorias because there's so much behind the scenes info and so much gossipy info. In reading that stuff, there's a lot of conversation about ratings where they started to agitate for new ratings. Even before the PG-13 ever happened, Siskel, was pushing very hard for an R-17 and then an R-14. And the difference would be the R-14 would be an R where it was just swearing and nudity, but the R-17 would be for explicit violence that was basically pornography. So those conversations were happening, and that word pornography got used a lot about that violence back then. I, you know, in Extremity, I... There's a scene where a psychiatrist compares horror movies to pornography. She says they're no better than pornography. I disagree with that, and I was actually going to comment about the obscenity thing. I actually believe that if you're making art, I, I believe it's impossible for it, at least for me to be for it to be really truly considered obscene. Right. I suppose it's also about. Explicit is a different word, and explicit is 100%. Yes, there's plenty that is explicit. Yeah, obscene is a little grayer. I, I picture, like, documentary footage of mm. somebody being tortured and murdered. That's, to me, that's... I think Salo is obscene, but I think Salo is supposed to be obscene. 
The horror films we grew up on, I think for the most part, are puppy dogs. They're trying to entertain you. Friday the 13th has no brain in its head. It's not mean or malicious, and it doesn't really have a political agenda or a point, and it's not about anything. Friday the 13th movies just want to do what they do so that you go, good boy, good Friday the 13th, you killed the teenagers. On that level, you kind of can't get mad at that kind of a horror film, but you also shouldn't get that worked up about it where you're trying to change ratings or you're trying to ban it or make it. I'm blown away when I look back at how up in arms certain critics were. And Gene Siskel might have been the worst of them. He was a real agitator for these movies to be just done away with. He hated them. I, I would have guessed maybe somebody like Michael Medved or somebody would. No, been I've always thought of them as someone my generation's film critics. I don't think that's true. I think they, you know, they were our parents' generation's film critics. We grew up watching them. Exactly. I think you you nailed it right there. Um, it, until let's say like you and your peers popped up on the scene, you really didn't have your generation's film critics. So I think there were moments where we had radical value differences, and watching the horror reaction was a big one. So. You know, I know there was a point in the in the eighties where if you were a horror nerd, it was weird, and that was one of the things that I think you and I bonded over was the fact that we both loved the the way things were done, and that was what was fun about those movies to us was talking about you know Tom Savini or John Carpenter or just the making of this stuff. There were definitely you know some voices, uh, filmmakers who. I think in some ways were even better than their movies at times. Like Wes Craven, I've always considered to be a much smarter filmmaker than some of his movies. Even I don't want to, it's going to sound like I'm so down on today's filmmakers because we do have some, some skilled horror filmmakers working today, but it it feels like we just don't have icons. Maybe Guillermo del Toro or somebody like that is like, on a level of icon, maybe. Yeah, I think I think we're revving up to that age again. I think Del Toro's hit the ground at this point where every time he makes a movie now, he it's 100% what he wants it to be. And that's all you can ask of a filmmaker is that they make the movie they meant that they have in their head or as close to that as possible. And you and I both know how hard that can be. I think Jordan Peele, right out of the gate, made a very strong case for the fact that he he understands that if you're going to make these films events, you have to really each time out, make it feel like you're doing something. And to me, the the way they're selling is new. And I don't know if you saw the poster just popped up today online. They're a able to lean on the fact that he's an Academy award winner for get out. Now that get out is sort of the, you know, the highbrow horror, but there's also a real sense that, okay, Jordan Peele, you're going to get this kind of an experience. We're not going to tell you anything about it. Just know it's him, so it's going to be awesome. And it's been a long time since we've seen that as the pitch for a film, uh, for a horror film, where it's just kind of the filmmaker's name and a promise. He's coming. He's going to do something crazy to you. You'll see. And that's that's what I think Cronenberg was for us and Romero was for us and Carpenter was for us. And those guys, every time out, I just would walk up and, okay, whatever. Here we go. Carpenter especially. I think Carpenter yeah. had probably the the widest range of of those entries i think well we got to see several of them theatrically together i know the i know i remember coming home from college and going to see they live with you yes that was i think one of the last movies i'm not saying it's the last movie but it was one of the last movies that we saw in florida 
And I remember, I remember coming specifically coming back because they live was coming out and I wanted to go see it with you. And that was always an event. Like it was always exciting when there was a new one coming. And I, that, that was a big part of the eighties for me as well was, was the, I was giddy about movies in the eighties. And when you and I met, I was still at that age where I knew enough about certain filmmakers to know that I had a lot of films I still had to go see. I love the fact that even at such a very early age, you were extremely opinionated. It really fueled me in a lot of ways. And also, it was such a special time because back then I still loved movies. I still, I, I still had an affection for them. Yeah, yeah, I don't really care for them that much these days. But there's every once in a while there's a movie. I used to joke, you know, before I got A-list, and we're getting way off topic here, but you know, your, your uh, listeners, I'm sure, don't mind. But um, since I got A-list, um, you know, I see a lot more movies now. Uh, but before A-List, I used to joke that it would have to be Star Wars, Indiana Jones, or James Bond to get, to get to you into a theater. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, 80s. It was an age where we were catching up on stuff, and there was new stuff coming out, and it was sort of the running parallel thing as a film fan that you and I were doing, where like Jack Nicholson would have a movie come out, and you and I would go, hey, let's go watch like four Jack Nicholson movies we've never seen. Yeah, I remember that we you would bring to my house like uh, the border and uh, where are the other Jack Nichols? I mean, and some really odd like choices where there were movies that um, I was too young to have even known that they had come out. And I often think about that today when like there's all these like little tiny movies that come out, and I say to myself, you know, in like fifteen twenty years, there's going to be some young film viewer coming up who discovers this movie. And it's bizarre to them because they don't have they have no clue that it was even in theaters. Yeah, like the other day I saw everybody online was freaking out because Peter Billingsley shows up as an elf in Elf. There's twenty year olds reading online stuff now whose minds were just blown. They're so cute. But no, I, I love the I love that giddy sense of discovery back then. And so I want to ask you, and this is a common question we ask people who come on and do the bonus episodes, if there are any films that you kind of hold dear from the eighties that you don't hear people talk about all the time. Absolutely. Um, it's funny that we were talking about horror because I would actually, I bring this one up. Uh, if, if anybody is listening, who is a horror fan and likes eighties horror movies, uh, there's a possibility that you haven't seen this movie. Actually, there's probably a strong possibility uh, unless you're like a really hardcore horror movie viewer. And I think I talked to you about this a little bit. It's a movie from 1988. Okay. It's called Flesh Eater. You remember me talking about it? I, I have heard you talk about it. I still have not seen it. I I am tracking it down for the show, though. It's so much fun, actually. It's so much it's so much more fun than it really deserves to be. That's the thing I liked about it. It's direct written and directed and stars uh William Heinzman, who is also referred to as Bill Heinzman. Uh, I have a number of friends who actually knew him and were friends with him. I never met him. I wish I had. He he has uh, passed away in recent years. But he is best known as the cemetery zombie yeah. in George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. He was also a very skilled filmmaker in his own right. And he, I mean, he, he's a cinematographer. He was a cameraman, director. He was a filmmaker. And, uh, you know, back then, you know, in Pittsburgh, Romero... Those guys, you know, I think to a large degree, a lot of those people working on the movies were filmmakers in a very kind of rounded out kind of way. Um, so in 1988, um, I mean, he probably made it a year or two before that, but 
uh, he made this movie, which is like, it's kind of a sequel in a way to Night of the Living Dead. It definitely wouldn't exist without it. Right. Okay. And it stars Bill Heinzman as, I mean, basically, uh, I don't think it's said explicitly in the movie, but he is the cemetery zombie from Night of the Living Dead. That's awesome. It's a zombie movie, but it's an 80s movie. And so there's some nudity in it. And the thing that was so amazing to me was, as I was watching it, I was very entertained. And I said to myself, wow, this is a very watchable movie. That's the way I described it. Because a lot of these movies like this, that kind of fall into this kind of category. Turn out to be Manos. Yeah, they're, they're unfortunately kind of difficult to get through. Yeah. Uh, not Flesh Eater. It's actually quite enjoyable. And nice. there's, there's a number of little cameos throughout the movie of people who appeared in Night of the Living Dead. Not many, but there's a couple. And it's almost like they're playing the same role. It's crazy. And just a fun movie overall. 1988, Flesh Eater, directed by William Heinzman. What I like about this pick for you is this is probably something that most people would never know about you, but you're a Pittsburgh kid originally. And that Pittsburgh heritage, that connection to Romero and that independent filmmaking scene that came out of there, whether it was John Russo or whether it was Tom Savini, that was also something that I think was really a big part of you when we first met. And I think for you, seeing Romero have made an iconic movie that people knew around the world that came from Pittsburgh was one of the reasons that you believed you could make films. And I think for anybody like you and I who didn't grow up around the business or with anybody who worked in the business, you needed that moment where you realized, okay, somebody else got out of where I am to go make movies. Romero was a great beacon for you. And Tom Savini as well. Um, as a, you know, a film craftsman, um, I remember seeing a documentary on PBS when I was a kid in the uh, early 80s uh, that was like an hour-long special about Tom Savini. It just blew my mind that this man who created these special effects lived in Pittsburgh. Well, and he also, he was such a, because he did Letterman several times, he was such a great spokesman for sort of the makeup industry, like uh, Botine or like Rick Baker, they look like rock stars. They all look like crazy young rock stars and made makeup look like the rowdy tour bus end of show business. Like it really looked fun the way they, they did it and talked about it. I always wanted to be made up under heavy makeup effects. And, and we kind of got that, uh, that dream fulfilled when we were um, zombies together uh, for KNB. Do you know who did your makeup that day? Christopher Nelson did your makeup that day, like on you, applied that. For those who don't know who that is, you recently saw him in Halloween, the David Gordon Green version, uh, as one of the two cops who was waiting outside Laurie Strode's place. He was Uma Thurman's husband in Kill Bill. But more importantly, he's a brilliant sculptor and makeup artist, a, a, truly a genius. And his sculpt on the mask in Halloween, I may not love the new version, the new Halloween movie, but good God, the sculpt he did was art. Just gorgeous. And then at the very end, uh, Gregory Nicotero did the final blood I touch. Know. Uh, which, yeah. And I was, I was wearing a Kennywood t-shirt, and he was like, hey, Kennywood, you know, because he's a Pittsburgh yep. self. Um, and, you know, uh, a little shameless plug here for myself. I have since kind of become a Pittsburgh filmmaker from my work with, you know, Fred Vogel in, in yep. Pittsburgh. I just finished a screenplay uh, for him for 
it's our third collaboration, and uh, it's actually a Christmas movie. I, I know he probably doesn't want me talking too much about this, so I'm not going to say what it's about. It just takes place at Christmas time. Let me just put it that way. What I love about the Pittsburgh independent scene in particular was that it was driven by a very nuts and bolts, matter of fact approach to film as a business, where Romero would go make industrials and commercials and whatever it took to keep the lights on to make features as well. And there, a lot of people felt like they were above that. And Romero struck me as blue collar filmmaking. This is what you do if you want to get your filmmaking up and running and just working. Did you hear recently that they discovered a one hour industrial of his that uh, is going to be coming out that they say is really terrific and scary and kind of a lost Romero horror film? It's a, it's a one hour he did that's about the way America treats the elderly. It's called The Amusement Park. And a couple of people have seen it now. Daniel Krauss, the co-screenwriter of Shape of Water, was talking about it. And he was like, it's crazy good. It's it's really scary and brilliant and angry. And But it's an industrial that he got commissioned to do. So he's never really like owned it, owned it. But I guess Romero's estate is they've made a deal and they're restoring it. And they're going to put it out. I always am saddened by the fact that I never got a chance to meet George Romero. Uh, we were at the same party he was at, one of the, I think it was yeah. the first Masters of Horror parties uh, for the series. And he, I found out after the party was over that he was there. And I was like, oh my God, I, I did, you know, it, and of course now he's, he's gone. But this past year, I was able to work with his son, which was really great. Um, I, I wrote a first draft of a script for him. It was a project that he really wants to do. But he's very busy with another project right now, so I wrote a first draft for him. And we're not like buddies or anything, but uh, I found it very enjoyable working with him in the brief time that I that I did. And I, I of course, admire his father very much. You know, obviously they're they're their own men. You know, Um, but uh, it seems fitting. That seems like the kind of thing. You know, it's like when when we worked with Carpenter, I felt like that was a bookend to a story. And the idea of you working with a Romero feels like the bookend to a story. So it's very fitting. Um, and I love your Carpenter story, by the way, it is a bookend, the masters of horror. <laughs> it's yeah. It, yeah, well, it's a we'll, bookend uh, that started, you know, years and years earlier. We'll get into that. We're almost to the December episode of, uh, of 84, where we're going to talk about Starman. So that, that episode is coming. It's weird. I'm I'm having such a strange sort of flashback, a perpetual flashback right now as I do the show. And because I am doing 84 right now, it made sense to reach out and have Bill Roseman on. And just talking to him about it, man, the memories become very palpable as I watch these things. I remember specific theaters now. I remember you know, when we saw something or, or how I saw something. And I'm sure that's going to continue through the Regency years and through, uh, you know, the, the rest of the 80s. And I have such clear memories of some of those screenings, uh, employee screenings of movies we saw early. You know, I remember when Texas Chainsaw 2 came out and we weren't allowed into the theater because it was unrated. So the only way to watch it was at the employee screening or from the booth. And that blew my mind that we could work at a theater where they could show a movie that we weren't legally allowed to step in and look at. I hope that you'll have me back for a couple movies from the 80s, like, let's say, when you get around to doing Willow, because we saw that together. Did, did you hear what I just did uh, at the Arrow here in Los Angeles? 
No, I did. You host a screening of Willow with uh, Ron Howard or something? I did a seventy millimeter screening of Ron Howard of Ron Howard's Willow with Ron Howard afterwards and Bob Dolman, screenwriter. And the great thing about that is Dolman is an SCTV writer. That's where he came from. So before we went on, I got my SCTV nerd on something fierce with him, and he was like, "I I like SCTV fans. They're good people." Because you mean it. <laughs> I don't think anybody's an accidental SCTV fan. Um, but Ron was terrific, and it was a really good conversation afterward. He hadn't seen it since 88, and he stayed through the whole thing, watched the movie, and then afterwards was like, huh, okay, well, that's Willow. <laughs> it was kind of fun to get him fresh right after seeing it for the first time since then. That's amazing. Um, maybe in 20 years you'll host a screening of solo perhaps i don't know <laughs> and he'll be like huh that was that was good that was pretty good i did pretty good there all right well and there were movies we went nuts for together it's one thing to have seen something but there were movies we went nuts for together where it was about the deep drill figure out all the magic tricks get inside the movie take it apart one of those was roger rabbit roger rabbit and back to the future part two those drove us crazy. Those those made us crazy when they came out. And it was like being at the Magic Castle and watching a magician do something and going, bullshit, do it again. When I almost sort of made a religion around Back to the Future Part 2 and you had to stage an intervention. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> well, do you remember that when we moved to Los Angeles and I was still relatively fearless about walking up to people, that one of the few people who ever got me so tongue-tied I couldn't speak was Robert Zemeckis. Yes, and, and you know what? Bless his heart. He was really nice to you. Yeah, I uh, I turned around at a movie theater counter, and I was working behind it, and standing in front of me was Robert Zemeckis, and I very astutely looked him in the eye and said, to which he said, it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, have you interviewed him since? Uh, I have, and you know, I'm I'm fascinated by where he is now because I think as a filmmaker now he's he's turned another corner and he's a different filmmaker again. The one thing you can say about him is there is no ten year stretch of his career that looks the same. He has been radically different people every ten years or so, and just continues to transform into I, the new the trailer for the new one befuddles me. I don't really know what to make of it, but it's interesting in it because it looks like a hybrid of yeah. everything he's been doing in the last, let's say, decade. A ton of mocap work and, and character capture. It's like a mixture of, uh, you know, the Denzel Washington movie he did, uh, that movie, and like uh, A Christmas Carol or what. It's just, it's, or Beowulf. It's like yeah. a mixture of those two things. The walk was very much like that because the walk depends on a half an hour long special effect. For a half an hour, the only thing you're really looking at is a special effect. And he's got to make you forget that. He's got to make you forget that this is all just him on a thing in a soundstage. This is not dangerous. I would say that Robert Zemeckis, tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if there's somebody else. I think Robert Zemeckis is as much like a magician as he is a filmmaker. I well, That was what drove us so crazy. What's funny is I talk to special effects guys artists who work in visual effects now. Um, there's a guy named Todd Viziri who has a great Twitter account that's just him talking about effects secrets and effects tricks and things from the past and stuff that he's interested in. And he loves going in and pulling old movies apart. And Back to the Future 2, he agrees. 
has got to be one of the most foundationally interesting effects movies of all time because there's 50 things in that movie that shouldn't work, that don't work, that can't work, and somehow work. Crazy shots in that movie where there's 19, like 19 different effects going on that Zemeckis has to marry somehow, and, he, and it involves Michael J. Fox hitting 17 different technical marks. And, oh, my God, it's just it makes my brain hurt still when I look at it. And that was that last gasp of special effects where it's all photographic. Everything's optical. The computer is basically, at that point, he was doing motion control tracking, but everything was still marrying optical trickery. Yeah, God. it's I, And Roger Rabbit was one of those where we went animation crazy because of what Richard Williams did and because it was so in love with animation as a medium. I think... Just like there are effects nerds who can trace everything back to seeing Back to the Future 2, there's a generation of animators who probably would not have gone into it if Roger Rabbit hadn't happened and driven them crazy in a movie theater. You remember we were marveling at how many years Robert Zemeckis spent making that movie, which (laughs) maybe today doesn't seem like it's that much. You know, we are we are in the age now where people routinely move mountains. Um, I want you to go see Aquaman. Keep in mind, it is Flash Gordon. That's what you're getting. You're getting 1980s Flash Gordon in all its cheesy, insane glory. It's just that the difference is Flash Gordon, they had to put people on wires and they'd build the wings and they'd figure out how to make the wings flap and they had to make the spaceships and they and it was really hard. And James Wan appears to be able to do much more much easier. The difference now is just scale, you know, but we watched a lot of guys, the the fantasy stuff and the stuff that we grew up on, the handmade sort of stuff that we saw, whether it be time bandits or, or legend, stuff like that. I think part of why it was such a great era to be a budding filmmaker was because they had to reinvent it every time there was, everybody was having to invent everything with every movie. It felt like. By the way, you just mentioned Time Bandits. I saw that in the theater, and that's one of the movies that I wish I had known you when I saw it because we uh, would have seen it. It would have been so amazing to have gone to the theater with you and see Time Bandits. Dark sensibility in that movie. And boy, talk about a film that holds up. Um, you know, we we talked a little bit uh, before we recorded about the fact that uh, some of the stuff that we grew up on doesn't really hold up. Some of the attitudes, some of the movies in general. As we start to wrap things up, I want to talk to you about a theory that I have that our generation was raised on this archetype of the the sort of unremarkable guy who rolls up his sleeves and puts a baseball cap on backwards and wears sunglasses and, and told us this is how you're supposed to behave. This is what this is what being a, a dude is. There's there's a generation of guys who learned all this from Michael Keaton and Bill Murray and Tom Hanks, who I think have turned out terrible. It's interesting to me that those attitudes were so ingrained and not at all what we want to celebrate or, or be now. You grew up in the same era as me. Uh, how do you feel about sort of the archetypes that, that were our models and our, our icons when we were young? This is a very complex theory, Drew. I call it my raised by assholes theory. I love that. I always felt big distance between myself and the men, uh, the characters I saw depicted on screen. I never really felt 
like I connected with them at all. I kind of like, I suppose, um, lived vicariously through their, uh, their on-screen personas, but I never really, uh, raced by assholes. What a great, are you going to like trademark that or I, I might write a book. I'm thinking about it. It's, it's there, this mediocrity, this, I'm going to come into a room and I'm going to talk real loud and fast and I'm going to say things and it's going to be, and I'm right. And there's a generation of dudes. When I watch Brett Kavanaugh screaming about how much he likes beer, I can't help but think, I bet you loved Mr. Mom. I and- wish he had brought like uh, a case with him. And, <laughs> and they were like, uh, Mr. Kavanaugh, do you uh, like drinking beer? And he's like, do I? I just, I just watched The Wildlife and the Chris Ping character in that. And it's treated as it's hilarious and it's somewhat aspirational. And, oh, aren't these guys great? And... And yes, Tom Hanks is sort of the nice guy version of it, but there were a lot of those dudes in movies in the 80s, and it sends a really weird cultural message. And, you know, the John Hughes heroes, uh, Ferris Bueller is, by any rational standard, if Ferris Bueller was injected into your social situation, you would hit him with a baseball bat. But we were raised with these guys at the center of our pop culture for about a decade, and I think we're still grappling with the shit we learned from that. I don't think Anthony Michael Hall was that character. I I always kind of identified more closely with his characters, except when he became Johnny B. Good. I, then I I tuned out, like Tom Petty did when the Beatles got starch and pepper mustaches and stuff. <laughs> Wait, Johnny B. Good is the equivalent of Anthony Michael Hall's starch and pepper mustache? Yes, that was okay. It. It's where you know Tom Petty tuned out of the Beatles at that point. I tuned out of Anthony Michael Hall, but I think a lot of people tuned out of Anthony Michael Hall. By the way, talking about, I, I can talk about Anthony Michael Hall because we're talking about the eighties. You are you are well within your legal rights to talk about Anthony Michael Hall right now. <laughs> the filmmaker that directs Anthony Michael Hall in a new classic Anthony Michael Hall performance wins. He had there's a reason that he and Robert Downey Jr. loved each other at that point. They had they had identical chops in terms of comedy timing. They both were supernatural when they were young. If you go back and look at Vacation, I would argue it's one of the great kid comedy performances of all time. He's deadly funny in that movie. And it's not just what Hughes wrote for him, it's him. He he nails every joke in that film perfectly. And I think there are certain kids, certain young actors who have supernatural comic timing when they're young. Robert Downey Jr. was another one. So it makes sense to me that they're, that whole SNL era of them loving one another deeply and thinking each other were the funniest person alive, it makes sense. I really do see it. And uh, I think Anthony Michael Hall is long overdue for someone to write him something good and use him the right way. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think it would take like a genius to put that together. And it makes me wonder why... Why somebody who uh, isn't like a big comedy director right now hasn't approached him and just said, you know what, we're going to do something really amazing. We're going to surprise everybody. Well, have you watched um, Cobra Kai? I want my daughter uh, is a fan of it. I'll flat out. I think it's terrific. I think it's great. I think it's better than the Karate Kid, but I think it only works because of the Karate Kid You and the affection we have for that and the distance we have from it. The fact that that really happened 30 years ago and we all have that real memory of 30 years ago from the movie is a wonderful thing that then informs this really great new thing where William Zabka turns out to be great. 
And I, if he is getting a comeback, Anthony Michael is certainly due a comeback. Yeah, it, it seems like Anthony, and it's funny, I, I don't want to, I don't know Anthony Michael Hall. I am not his agent. I will not get a cut of his comeback. I, I don't know much about him, except from what I read. And I don't know. It seems like he turned his back on that persona. Well, he made a terrible choice. And I, that choice has got to haunt him, which is the out of bounds slash full metal jacket choice. And I, I truly think it changed the trajectory of everything that came after. I think if he'd gone the other way. I went searching on YouTube looking for him in an interview where he addresses Full Metal Jacket. I can't find anything. Yeah. I, you don't see a lot of interviews where Eric Stoltz talks about Back to the Future either. I think the, I think the one that got away is the one that you don't have a ton of conversations about. I love, and again, you know, this is very 80s, so we can talk about it. I love uh, interviews. I did find interviews of, like, uh, Thomas F. Wilson talking about Eric Stoltz. And it seems like there is just, like, no love <laughs> Doesn't sound like okay. he's a big Eric Stoltz fan. Um, okay, now to bring things back to Back to the Future, let's let's wrap up by talking about a guy, and this is this is where the the difference comes between being somebody who kind of looks at the '80s now nostalgically, or somebody who lived through it and had had your reactions to something then. I don't know if anybody will ever understand how nutty we went for Thomas F. Wilson during Back to the Future Two. I was all about that guy should be the next big thing because holy shit, look at what he did. It was like he had like accidentally stumbled into a moment where all the spotlights are on him. Obviously, he's a very skilled actor. He's a very skilled comedian. So it's like it makes sense. I'm not saying that it was like he just walked onto a set and then, the, you know, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just that. Because of the success of the first film and because of the way the second film story-wise came together, it was kind of almost just this very fortuitous situation for him where it was like, oh, I'm doing all this in the next movie? It's like uh, Porky's 2. You you told me this. Porky's 2 plays like the audition of everybody for like bigger movies or something like that. I think you said something. (laughs) Like where it's like they all knew like, okay, I'm going to be on. This is it. Yeah, the first one – I don't know if anybody's going to look at this. The second one, holy shit, everyone's looking. Yeah. And it, it's weird that Thomas Wilson, uh, I mean, he's had his moments since, you know, but like I thought it was really weird when I, I saw that movie with him. Uh, what was that movie with uh, Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy? What was that movie where they were cops? Oh, The Heat. The Heat. He's in The Heat. And yeah. it's so funny because now he is Biff. Like he's aged into Biff. That's Paul Feig, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that the reason that he's in that is not is because he's also on Freaks and Geeks, which was Paul Feig. And um, I, yeah, I think once you've worked with him, you probably will work with him over and over because you realize what he is. But I, the Back to the Future Two felt like they realized on the first film what a tiger that guy was, and they went, "Oh, we're going to write for him. We're going to let that guy run. We're going to see how far we can push him." And the the nine or ten different biffs they end up writing for him by the end of that thing, it's so much fun to watch him go through that. You know, Michael J. Fox, of course, they're going to put him through the paces and get, let him play a bunch of different characters. But I really, I just remember how excited we both were for that, for what, for Biff and for the variations on. And I never realized that there would come a time where he would actually hold public office and be our president. There he is. That's his downfall was Biffco. He, he had some real shady dealings with the. Uh, 
Rebecca, it's a delight to have you here and to uh, just chat 80s in general. There is very little chance you will not be back before the end of the uh, the podcast. So the 80s, I was there, man. You were there. You were there. You they can't. You you don't think I burn baby? You don't you don't think I kill babies? I, I was there, man. You kind of mixed Rain Man with Born of the. I did. I was trying to get to Born of the Fourth of July and I couldn't quite get there. <laughs> underwear is underwear. Doesn't matter where you buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, as we as we degenerate into thirty year old inside jokes, <laughs> and just do Tom Cruise impressions back and forth. I might have went a little Rain Man nutty too back then. Oh yeah, that was a big one. Yeah, 88 will be a good year. We'll have you back around 88, because I think that was a great year. 88, 89, right in that range. Have me back for Mississippi Burning. That was I would heavy, love to. Heavy movie. Don't be frightened. I'll be good. Okay, don't worry. <laughs> I know that sounds like a, a real disaster waiting to happen. It's like, why does he want to come back for that one? I've, I've changed. Okay, I'm <laughs> a totally different person now. She left. Yeah, she left. Uh, Gene Hackman. Beautiful man. Beautiful man. Definitely. When we met him, he's a beautiful man. Beautiful. Uh, man. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, it was such a such a wonderful thing sitting in for as a guest on your podcast. Uh, Rebecca, please tell people where they can see Extremity if they are interested. Uh, they can uh, see Extremity. They can buy it directly from Epic Pictures, epicpictures.com, Extremity, directed by Anthony DeBlossi. You can uh, buy it online. You can also, if you wish to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at horror swan, all one word. Uh, I'm also on Instagram as Rebecca C A, like California swan. Um, I got a lot of pictures there. Just, just try to not, you know, don't don't send me love letters. Just I got enough of those, so no. Um, so, but please feel free to like all my pictures. I I get a massive massive uh, boost for my ego from that. It's I'm sure each one's a dollar. Each like is a dollar. Absolutely. It is. It feels that way. So thank you so much. Thank you for uh, spending this time with me, Drew. I feel like I'm still your friend. Of course you are. Of course. My oldest friend. That's so sweet. I love you, Drew. You All don't right. have to like me, but you know, I know you do. I will talk to you very soon, and I am delighted to have had you here. And guys, uh, please, as always, uh, continue to share the word about the show. Uh, We appreciate your patronage and your support here on Patreon. Uh, We have great guest stars lined up for the new year. We have some great bonus content coming for you, including the episode that I promised that I am getting ready to record where my dad and I will sit down and discuss insane, insane films I should not have seen theatrically and did. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, everybody.